It is indeed a wonderful thing to be part of the body of Christ. A great cloud of witnesses cheering us on from generations past and an extended church family from around the world. If you're watching online this morning, uh, please know I just met a couple of new brothers in Christ. Sal from Iran, Moto from Japan. Great to have you guys with us today visiting. Uh, It's great to... uh, Great to have Benita back with us, and happy birthday, Fiona. Happy birthday. Please wish Fiona a happy birthday as well this morning. So we have many, many reasons to celebrate this morning. Today, we are looking at Jesus' one, one of his most famous parables, the parable of, of the good uh, Samaritan. I'm sure you've heard it all many, many uh, times before. Uh, we're in Luke chapter 10. If you want to open up and follow along, you've been with us these last few weeks at church in the marketplace we know that we've been following Luke's gospel, we've been traveling with Jesus through Luke's gospel. It is the, the year of Luke in a series of set readings. Followers of Jesus around the world are following, and you'll know that we reached a bit of a turning point in Luke's gospel up until now in the first half of Luke's gospel. Luke has been setting out who Jesus is, and in the last couple of weeks, there's been a bit of a turning point with a call to respond, to go and to, to declare Uh, to the world who Jesus is, to respond to the good news of Jesus Christ. Last week we heard of Jesus sending out 72 of his followers to respond, to take out the good news of Jesus Christ, to declare to the towns and villages nearby uh, that the kingdom of God had had drawn near in the person of of Jesus Christ. So they were called then last week was to go and be a gospel messenger, to declare with words who Jesus is, to declare his kingdom. But today... We're moving into the call to go and to be the gospel, to go and to be a gospel neighbor. Gospel neighboring is our challenge this morning. So last week it was the word and this week it is the deed, the doing, to put the gospel into action, to embody the gospel, to live it out, word and deed. The two have always gone together in the church. If we're only uh, telling of our hope with words, uh, without actually backing it up, with actions and our words ring hollow. And if we're doing a whole lot of good words without giving people the reason for the hope that we have, well, that's really just social work. And as good as social work undoubtedly is, we are called to do more than simply just do social work. We are called to declare the good news of Jesus Christ, to bring about the kingdom of God in word and indeed this morning. This morning we have a challenge from Jesus from one of the one of the tribes in Jesus' time was very good at one, not so much at the other. Very good at talking, not so good at the doing. This is the parable of the Good Samaritan, Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through to 37. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? Jesus replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. 
They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he travelled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. He put the man on his own donkey and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbour to the man who fell into the hands of robbers. The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Friends, let's pray. Loving Lord, capture our minds, capture our hearts in this moment. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, one of the things that frequently happened to Jesus was that he'd be challenged, he'd be tested by various different people. Uh, in this case, it's a teacher of the law. They love to get together and to debate. You see it all the time still today, whenever you get a group of ministers together, a little bit of, a little bit of uh, one-upmanship, a bit of verbal jousting. I'm sure mine isn't the only profession. I'm sure in your profession you uh, might gather together with professionals who love to sort of uh, do a bit of one-upmanship, a bit of who knows the most about this particular subject. Uh, it was uh, what a lot of uh, the, uh, the Jewish leaders loved to do, was this sort of rhetorical debating style. And, and Jesus was the new kid on the block. He was a hotshot young rabbi doing things a little bit differently, an itinerant rabbi going around teaching and, and drawing large crowds. And rumor was spreading that he, some miraculous signs and wonders were accompanying his teaching. So now the other experts in the law are lining up to have a crack at him, wanting to bring him down a peg or two, trying to test him. We're told here that the lawyer was actually trying to test Jesus. You get the sense that he's trying to, to expose Jesus, get him to say something that conflicted with the established, handed-down uh, teachings from Moses so they could prove that he was a bit of a, a heretic and thereby they could then they could have him on, on toast. But Jesus had this infuriating habit of turning the tables on his, on his questioners. Not only would he take the debate off into strange new territory that, that, he, that exposed you as, as not really practicing what you preached, you ended up losing the debate and having egg on your face as well. So the challenges kept lining up, and the more popular he became, uh, the more keen they were to knock him off, to bring him down, a peg or two. And so this morning, it's uh, an expert in the law. It's, it's his turn. He's, we're told that he, he stands up and he, he asks a question to Jesus in order to test him with a pretty simple question. He simply asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That is the context for this parable. What must I do to inherit e- eternal life? Now, this was a fairly straightforward question. But there were rumors floating around that Jesus had been giving some unorthodox answers. 
that he had some pretty strange views on these things. So if they could ask the straightforward questions and trap Jesus into saying something a little bit unorthodox, then maybe they had an in to try to prove that he wasn't the real deal, that he was, he was an imposter. So he asked this very simple question, but Jesus shows us the way about how to deal with a cynical question like this. He, he actually throws the question back to the question in good rhetorical style. Uh, rather than sort of accept the premise of the question, Jesus throws the question straight back into the questioner's face. He says, well, how do you read the law? What does it say? You, you, tell, you tell me. Uh, the lawyer, of course, at this point is, is forced to give the correct answer. There was a correct answer, and he, and he recites, um, he answers his own question. Um, he says, well, we all know what it says, don't we? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Friends, you need to understand that this was, and still is, called the Shema. All good Jewish people would know the Shema. They would recite it morning and night. It's sort of the Jewish equivalent of the Lord's Prayer. This is the correct answer. Everyone knew the Shema. This was the correct response. He was playing it safe. And so what Jesus has done to this fellow at this point is really thrown back this kindergarten answer at him and forced him to give his own kindergarten-level answer. Certainly not the sort of thing that would set you apart from your peers. So you can sort of almost at this point hear a bit of a chuckle go around the room. He comes here trying to test Jesus, but he was forced to answer his own silly question with his own answer. So you get the sense that he wasn't going to leave it at that that he's feeling a little bit embarrassed, so he fires back at Jesus, uh, and he says, well, 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 who is my neighbor then? Now, what you need to understand at this point is that this expert in the law really isn't interested in helping his neighbor at all. He just wanted a theological debate. He just wanted a sort of an esoteric debate about defining a neighbor. He really just wants to know what is the bare minimum I've got to do so that God can accept me. What is the bare minimum I need to do in order that, that I can get into heaven? That's really what the lawyer is asking. What is the bare minimum I need to do to get to heaven? He wasn't interested in being a neighbor at all. He was simply interested in having the debate. Friends, we see this all the time in the church. We'd rather talk about being a good neighbor than actually be a good neighbor. I've sat through many a church meeting down through the years where we talk a lot about mission. I was on a presbytery mission committee. I chaired the mission committee. We did a whole lot of talking and not always a whole lot of doing. And that's what's happening here. The talk can be a good excuse to actually do nothing. And that's what's going on here with this fellow. But Jesus sees through this, uh, this expert in the law's uh, motives, and Jesus isn't into playing simply academic games. He's not interested in these pretentious sort of intellectual gap-jousting games. And so he answers uh, this lawyer's question with his famous parable, the parable of the Good Samaritan. What I love about Jesus' parables is their universalism, aren't they? They're simple stories that are as relevant today as they were 2,000 years ago. We live in a very different time, very different culture, but we still see ourselves in these parables, don't we? A farmer went out to sow his field. A king held a great banquet and invited everybody. Or a man went down the road on a journey and got 
beaten up on the way. We still have the same fears and loves and joys as people did 2,000 years ago. And I love how the parables are so easily accessible and how they hold up a mirror to us and how we can see ourselves, see ourselves in the characters of these parables. And that's what I want to briefly do this morning. I want to introduce to you three different attitudes that you can see in the parable from the three chief protagonists and, and ask, well, where do I fit in? And where does the world around us fit in in, in, these, in these separate, in these, different, uh, in these different attitudes? Firstly, we have the robbers themselves. Then we have the priest and the Levite. And finally, we have the Samaritan. So firstly, the robbers. Now, what was the robbers' attitude in all of it? The robbers' attitude basically is, What's yours is mine if I can get it. If I can get hold of whatever's yours and if I can get away with it, then I will. This attitude is everywhere and it's not just conflicted to violent criminals out on the street. Oh, that's certainly part of it. If I, can, uh, if I can get hold of what I want from you and if I can get away with it, then I, I, I will. But it goes beyond simply violent criminals. I think this is an attitude that is slowly creeping in right around society in any number of different ways. Your investment is mine if I can plunder it. Your identity is mine if I can trick you into giving me your, your password. Your company is mine if I can take it over. Your staff members, your customers are mine if I can induce them to, to come across to me. Your time is mine if I can somehow make you beholden to me. If I can do it and get away with it, there are no rules. I'm just going to do it as long as it's legal. Maybe even if it's not, if I can get away with it, then I'm going to do it. It doesn't just happen on personal levels. It happens sort of at a, at a national level, doesn't it? You know, it happens, you know, I can, your bodily autonomy, here's a controversial one, your, your bodily autonomy, even your freedom of movement can be mine if I can convince enough of the electorate to be very, very fearful and convince them all that, I kept you all safe for the last two years. Or even on an international level. Your part of the Pacific can be mine if I can convince enough leaders of that little Pacific nation to back me and my Navy over your Navy. What's mine is yours if I can get it. Now, I think as a society we have tragically fallen into this way of, of thinking and we're far worse off for it greed, and self-promotion. We've substituted a Christ-like, self-sacrificing attitude for this me-centered, what, what's in this for me kind of attitude. We're paying a heavy price for it in society. But I think for most of us here this morning, we don't so much have that outright attitude of what's yours is mine if I can get it. We're a little bit more like the priest and the Levite. What's mine is mine, and I'm going to hang on to it if I can. I think in Aussie society, again, we see a lot of this kind of attitude. You see, these two gentlemen were fine, respectable, upstanding members of their community. Uh, they were they, they, doing, not doing anything wrong. They're not breaking any law at this point. They're just not wanting to be put out. They're just not wanting to be putting themselves out or to make any sort of sacrifice for this poor man that's beaten up and half dead on the road. Bear in mind it probably was dangerous. The guy is still alive, so the robbers might still be just around the next bend. By stopping and pausing, they might actually be putting themselves in danger. By pausing, they might miss the appointment that they're going down to, Jer to Jericho for. 
they might, they might get blood on them. I mean, they, they, they might have to actually get close with someone who might be unclean. They, they, you know, they might have to, uh, might cost them something in, in, in medical expenses. So, so they're not breaking any law. They just have this attitude of what's mine is mine, and I'm going to hang on to it if, if I can keep it. Don't get involved. I'm going to put myself out. Um, what's mine is mine. There's a little bit of the priest and the Levite in all of us. I know there's certainly a bit of the priest and the Levite in me whispering in my ear, Pete, just don't get involved. Don't, don't, don't worry about not your problem, right? We have a saying in our house, not my circus, not my monkeys. Just leave it alone, right? Just, just look after number one. Don't put yourself out. Don't risk losing time or money or effort or prestige. And again, it happens on more than just a personal level. It happens on a neighbourhood level. I remember uh, back where we used to live, there was a, a nice, nice little country town with nice middle-class people. There was a proposal to put in some, some housing for some, some uh, people who were struggling in life. Well, you wouldn't believe the blow-up. My property prices is mine, and I'm going to hang on to it if I can. I don't want those sort of people coming into our neighbourhood. What's mine is mine. I'm going to hang on to it. Or on a national level as well, one of the really ugly things of the Australian psyche, I reckon, is our incredibly stingy overseas aid. As one, one of my little pet peeves, it's our money, it's Aussie's money, it's Aussie's tax money. I think the, national, the international benchmark's about 0.7 of 1%. I don't think as, an, as a nation we're anywhere near that. I think we're about half that. It's our money. It's ours. And don't go spending that money, government, on anyone else elsewhere. It's our money. What's mine is mine, and I'm going to try to keep it. Jack Lang was a New South Wales Premier back in the 1920s and 30s, and I, I love one of his sayings. He's famous for having said, always bet on self-interest. At least you know it's trying. Always bet on self-interest. At least you know it's trying. What's mine is mine. I'm going to hang on to it any way that I can. And finally, we come to the Good Samaritan. Now, I think many of you will be aware of this, but I just want to affirm what this word Samaritan means, what Jesus' first hearers would have heard when they heard this word, this term, Samaritan. Right? It rolls off the tongue 2,000 years later. We say, oh, he's a good Samaritan. No, no, no. The Samaritan was a hated tribe. Jews and Samaritans hated each other. You see what Jesus is doing here? He's making their sort of the mongrel, half-blooded northern cousins the hero of the story. When they first heard this word Samaritan, they would have been tempted to yell out, boo! But no, no, rather than being the villain... The Samaritan is the hero. I'm trying to think what the modern Aussie equivalent would be. I, maybe the, the, he's made the Islamic terrorist the hero of the story, the dull bludger the hero of the story, the child molester, the most hated people in society. That is who the Samaritans represent in this story. And Jesus has made this guy the hero of the story. And it's the Samaritan that has this attitude of what's mine is yours if you need it. He is the one that gives sacrificially, that gives dangerously, that proves to be a true neighbour to this man by stopping, tending to his wounds, 
lifting him up onto his own donkey, taking him to the inn. My favorite line in this whole parable is that one where he says to the innkeeper, remember that? He says to the innkeeper, if there's any further expenses that he incurs, keep a note of it because I'll come back and fix you up for that as well. It's the Samaritan that goes out of his way. And he was faced with the same dilemma as the priest and the rabbi. He's putting himself in danger by tarrying on this dangerous road. But he is the one that comes and offers practical help, practical loving help, footing the bill. It was risky. He takes responsibility for this man. And don't we need more of that in the church today and in society today? We need more people willing to simply take responsibility for what they see around them. We need that in the church. And men, I know I pick on you. I'm one of you, so I can. We need men to step up and to take responsibility for their church family. So I'm going to offer this service to my church family. I'm going to offer leadership, offer encouragement, offer fellowship uh, for the, uh, the other blokes in my church family. The Samaritan takes responsibility for those around him. What's mine is yours if you need it. So there's our three attitudes. What's yours is mine if I can get it. What's mine is mine if I can keep it. And what's mine is yours if you need it. Now just quickly, I want to very briefly point out that this doesn't mean that we're called to be puppets to everybody's wants and desires. Being a follower of Jesus Christ doesn't mean that we open ourselves up to being used and abused and manipulated. There are far too many genuine neighbours in need in this world to waste our precious time and resources as individuals and as a church family. We're going to need to learn to say no at some points in time. But I think the message of this parable is clear. The challenge is clear. Am I willing to be a neighbour like that? like this despised Samaritan. And how could I possibly do that? How could I possibly go about living like that? Can I suggest to you this morning that you really can't unless you've first been the recipient of such love and grace? See, following the Lord isn't going to do it. Simply following a set of rules isn't going to change your heart. True neighboring only comes out of a response to the free grace that you've been given in Jesus Christ, because I want to introduce, as I close, one final person in this story, and that is the person that's been beat up on the side of the road. Friend, aren't we all that guy on the side of the road? Aren't we all in desperate need of a saviour? Aren't we all in desperate need of someone to come and to pick us up, to dust us off, to love us, and to pay the price for our salvation? Friend, Jesus Christ is the ultimate good Samaritan, isn't he? Jesus Christ left his place in heaven by his Father's side. And costly, at the price of his own life, redeems us, saves us, heals us, restores us, even though we don't deserve it. Let me leave you with an illustration, a challenge from church history, from the early church, as a matter of fact. The early church took this stuff seriously, in a way that I think we in the comfortable Western church need to, to rediscover. And look, I'm including myself in this as well because we're so comfortable at times here in Australia in 2022 in the church. We have everything we could possibly need. 
But the early church really lived this stuff out. There's a famous letter by the Roman emperor Julian in the 4th century. And in it, Julian is lamenting the spread of the Christian church throughout the Roman Empire. The Christian church is exploding across the empire. And the emperor has written a letter, uh, when we still have a copy of it, uh, lamenting this fact. And he's, and he's trying to work out what's going on with these atheists. Christians were actually called atheists back in the day because they didn't believe in the Roman gods, right? So Julian writes this. He says, atheism, that is the Christian church, has been specially advancing through, listen to this, the loving service rendered to strangers and through their care for the burial of the dead. He said it is a scandal, a scandal, that these godless Galileans, he called them, godless Galileans, care not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. While those who belong to us look in vain for the help that we should render to them. This is what empowered the church to grow and to spread and to thrive to the very ends of the world. So friends, can I leave you with a challenge? Let's love the people around us like this good Samaritan. Let's be a good neighbor to those around us, providing for their needs so selflessly, so dangerously, so recklessly, so graciously, so sacrificially that the people around us need to hear the gospel just to make sense of the way you and I live our life. Amen? What's mine is yours if you need it. That was God's attitude to us in Christ. Let's go make it our attitude to all those we encounter this week. Amen? I can invite the band to come forward, but let's pray. Uh, loving Lord, we, we ask for your help this morning in being this sort of a neighbor. This is indeed a challenge this morning. Help us to be that good Samaritan, because you were first our good Samaritan, Father. You, break into, you broke into our world when we didn't deserve it, when we were desperately in need, unable to help ourselves. You came down and lived as one of us. You reconcile us back to you through the blood of your son, Jesus Christ. Leaving the safety, the comfort of the heavenly throne, he came down and lived and died for us to bring us life. Thank you, Lord. Help us to pay it forward. Help us this week to recklessly, dangerously, sacrificially give to those around us, having an attitude of, well, what's mine is yours if you need it. Amen.